Let me open in prayer and we'll begin. Our Father, we come before you as uh, recipients of divine grace, thankful, Lord, for all that's been provided for us, thankful that your spirit has been uh, shed abroad in our hearts, that the love made manifest through your Son has been given to us, that we have uh, eyes to be able to see the truth, to know the truth, faith to embrace and hold on to the truth because of your steadfast love. We pray this morning that uh, you'll open our eyes to see the great truth before us in the uh, consistency of the Apostle Paul, for which we benefit uh, these many years later, and also uh, inspire and encourage us, strengthen us uh, to be gospel proclaimers as uh, we look at this truth this morning. We thank you in Christ's name. Verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. You know, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face. They had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yeah. Okay, now, the the account of this narrative, uh, the story being told to us is is one unit of thought. It begins in verse 13 of chapter 25 and runs all the way to the end of chapter 26, which we're going to attempt to cover this morning. It's one account. Um, It's the time that that Paul um, declares the gospel yet once again, this time before Agrippa, where in Acts 26, 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, oftentimes, you've probably heard that verse preached in the context of saying that there are many people 
who are, are just ready to surrender to Jesus. They're on the verge of coming to Christ. But that's not at all what that verse means. The statement actually reads, Are you, with so few words, trying to convert me, Paul? It's a statement of mockery. That's all, that's all it is. In other words, he's saying, hey, I know what's going on. I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to convince me to become a Christian. To which Paul says, that's right. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Whether I can convince you with few words or many, yes, I wish that you and everybody else who's within earshot might come to saving faith, with the exception of these chains, right? So that's what he means, and that's what he's going to get to. So having been uh, falsely accused, tried before the Sanhedrin, nearly beaten to death in the temple court some chapters ago, he's rescued by the uh, Roman guard. He's brought into Fort um, Antonia. Um, he escapes the, the assassination plot of 40 rebels, right? He, he's taken out of Jerusalem and, and brought up to Caesarea. And uh, he stands before Felix, the governor at the time, who uh, leaves him in prison for two years. Festus relieves him. Um, he stands before the judgment seat of yet another man, Festus. And after Festus, chapter 25, verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? Verse 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. You remember that? If, if I've committed a capital crime deserving of death, put me to death. But if there's nothing to these charges, no one can give me up to them, then I appeal to Caesar. See, Paul knew he'd never make it to Jerusalem alive. He understands this. So he appeals here to Caesar. That's a right granted to all Roman citizens. So he pulls his card. He throws it down on the table. But this would become a double-edged sword for Festus. Um, on one hand, it would relieve the pressure of the Sanhedrin off of him. But on the other hand, it may reveal to, to Caesar that uh, he's incompetent in his new position, right? Pressure. Then verse 12, Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. The Caesar at this time was Nero himself, known in the first century as the wild beast. He came into power in 54 AD. Josephus and Tacitus inform us that Nero was tutored by the Stoic philosopher Seneca. And for the first five years of his reign, he was actually um, a model emperor. Nero. And then for reasons unknown to us, he snaps. And he turns into the bloodiest, most corrupt and cold-hearted emperor uh, in Rome's history. So before, he's, before Paul journeys to Rome, he's going to be subject to one more hearing, and that's before this neighboring king from the Herodian line, Agrippa. And felt, you know, Festus, he feels at this time 
um, that in order to get to the bottom of this case, perhaps Agrippa could be of assistance because, after all, this is a Jewish thing. It has to do with their religion. It has to do with their law. It has to do with this Jesus who died and Paul says is alive. So let me see what I can get out of Agrippa. So Agrippa, this Jewish king, he arrives. He figures he could make sense out of all the confusion. He arrives with his entourage. And basically what Agrippa is doing is making a courtesy call with his entourage to this new governor. That's what he's really doing here. Now Herod, even though he's considered a king, he's only a vassal king. You know, uh, he, he was to the land of Israel what you know, Queen Elizabeth is to England. So it's more of, of, of grandeur and formality than it is you know, true rulership. I mean, Rome relinquished all of their governing authorities and they left these little puppet, these little vassal puppet kings in place. So that's all he was. And we remember the Herodian line, Herodian the Great, who was living and ruling at the time of Christ's birth. And then there's Herod Antipas, the Herod that Jesus referred to as the fox. Then you have Herod Agrippa I. He's the one who put James to death. He had him beheaded. And then he died that violent death back in Acts 12. You remember that? Eaten by worms and all that. God strikes him dead. An angel strikes him dead. And then uh, here you have the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one alive at Jesus' birth, Herod Agrippa II. So here you have this, this long family line who, who actually have encountered Christ from his birth. The whole line. And this one encounters the preaching of Christ crucified through Christ's apostle Paul. So many of them saw Jesus face to face, but they failed to see who he was, who he truly was. And now um, Agrippa II hears about this Christ through the mouth of Paul. And that, caused us, that, that should cause us to ask what kind of legacy we're laying down to our children and our grandchildren. Amen? So this is a dynasty, the Herodian line. Um, Herod II, he's not a powerful man. He thinks he's powerful, but he's not. And he, he was the brother of this Bernice. He and Bernice come into this place, as we'll see in all this pomp and pageantry. Bernice um, is his sister, and this relationship is one of the most infamous, infamous um, relationships throughout history because they were brother and sister who had an incestuous relationship. And another fascinating point about this Bernice is that she was the sister of Drusilla. Remember Drusilla? The one who was uh, married to Felix, who was governor, and Felix stole her away from another king of Syria at the age of 16, lured her away. So this is a twisted mess. So Agrippa, he's fascinated with this case. He wants to hear it. Festus is more than willing to have him hear the case in hopes to make some sense out of it. And then in verses uh, 13 to 21, which we just read, Festus recounts the case to Agrippa. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Okay, so why another 
detailed account of the apostle on trial yet again. Well, as I said last time, it's not only Paul who's on trial here. In a very real sense, the church of Jesus Christ is on trial. And imagine the original recipients of Luke's writings. The church of the very near future to Luke and Paul will be on trial. They will stand time and time again on trial. Many will be put to death. So as he records the details here, there's many lessons, no doubt, that they could learn from. Number one is facing trials in the midst of great intimidation. This kind of opposition, you know, and and standing there and giving a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect, uh, you're not going to be able to do that in your own strength and power. It's impossible. I mean, so so he, he draws in on this very intimidating scene. This is a big deal. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Imagine the State of the Union address the other night, the president. Imagine being pulled in there and having to stand before all those powerful people. Intimidating? I would say so. King Agrippa, wearing his royal robes, Bernice's sister in her ceremonial dress, in all of the authorities, all of the dignitaries, all of this entourage, he's dragged in. Here they are. And Luke 26, 29 tells us that he's brought in in chains, most likely shackled at the wrists, chained to his ankles. Probably not in his best clothes probably had no time to tidy up, and he's dragged into this. So in the midst of all the power and all the prestige, in the midst of Caesarea, be a very intimidating scene, here he is. That word there, uh, pomp, in verse 23, is the word uh, fantasia. You're familiar with uh, fantasia or fantasy. It's from where we get fantastic. which suggests that all of these things that seem so, so important are, are passing fantasies. You know, we look at a lot of, a lot of things, right? You're going to say the Super Bowl today and all these powerful people and all these popular people being interviewed um, to watch these great athletes play this great game, the best game in the whole wide world. <laughs> and as you see this stuff, you think, man, this stuff can never pass. We may think that momentarily. When you look at the power of Rome, the last thing you would ever think is that that mighty empire would pass. It passed. What would have seemed more stable than the Roman Empire? What seems more stable than than the power of America? So Luke is suggesting here all this... All this pomp is mere fantasy. Um, The the gospel of Jesus Christ um, is no less powerful or significant today than it was then. 
So here's a seemingly insignificant man in the midst of all this pomp and all these fleeting fantasies standing there in chains. Now imagine this little guy. We only have one description um, in all of ancient writing describing the apostle Paul. it, It actually comes from the Apocrypha which says this, he was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man and now he appeared as an angel. Paul. Unintimidated by this pretentious display. This would have served as great encouragement to the early church. Remember, Jesus promised that he would bear witness to Gentiles and kings, fulfilled yet once again. And once he's finished, as always, his hearers will be without excuse. So Paul's life hangs in the balance here. He's in the midst of this intimidating environment, and he's prepared to declare the whole counsel of God as he always does. He's not afraid to point out man's sin. He's not afraid to point out the righteousness of God as he declares the gospel. And many of us think it's hard to share the truth of the water cooler at work. Look at this guy. And Festus said, King Agrippa, in all, verse 24, all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So there's a mixture of truth and error there. It's true that the the Jewish commission petitioned for his death. It's not true that he couldn't specify the charges against him. His problem was, you know, coming up with evidence to substantiate the charges. That was his problem. So he should have released him. But according to the province of God and his sovereign purposes, he wouldn't be released. He will get to Rome on Rome's dime. As I said a couple weeks ago, there is no separation of church and state with God. He's the sovereign ruler of all things, all kings, all rulership. Okay, so Agrippa, in his defense, chapter 26, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Listen carefully, he says. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. So in verses 4 through 11 here, he begins to talk about the fact that at one time he was a very, very religious man, zealous. And the Jews, as you know, could well attest to that fact and corroborate and confirm the reality of that proclamation. 
what, now what he's going to say about his former life. Raised in the strictest sect of the Pharisees. Okay, Luke records, you know, this very thing back in Acts 9. He records it here. Um, and we see it, uh, we saw it in Acts 22. You know, his testimony. His testimony. So he draws attention to, to the belief of his kinsmen. Okay, notice this. He's a brilliant guy. Verse 6. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hoped to attain. Did you get that? He's going way back. As they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he begins with the resurrection. If, if this God that these Jews believe in, that's Paul's point, if he is infinite, if he is all-powerful, if he has created all things out of nothing, as you Jews believe, why would it be a problem for this God to raise the dead? He's brilliant. So remember, he has a mixed crowd here. There's Gentiles here, obviously. They would have most certainly thought it to be incredible and foolish of a resurrected Jesus. But the Jews, from their deepest roots, expected and hoped in a future resurrection. Remember Martha with Jesus? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. She says, well, I believe in the resurrection. You know, the promise, that's what the Jews were taught, a promise of a future future resurrection. So Paul says, in effect, those who are trying to kill me in the name of orthodoxy, this is his point. Those who are trying to put me to death in the name of orthodoxy are persecuting me for the orthodoxy set forth in the very scriptures that they claim to adhere to, to believe in. He's going back to the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, way back. Passed on down the line to David, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all truths that they believed and proclaimed. And that's why resurrection and eternal life, right? Faith in Jesus Christ is never a question of intellect. Ever. It's a question of truth and life. So you don't have to be intimidated by intellectuals who scorn the idea of a resurrected Christ and faith and trust in him alone. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. So he draws attention to the past. He draws attention to his pharisaical past, his zeal to actually persecute those who were of the way, for which he now is one of the way. Where Paul moved about, he says in this account, he moved about trying to get Christians to blaspheme and then consenting to their death. He goes, this is what I was. This is what I did. Verse 11, I punished them often. In all the synagogues, I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
He says, this describes my life as a religious man. So he addresses the Jews. And remember, Agrippa's sitting there. And then he draws attention to his experience with Christ, verses 12 through 18. Journey to Damascus by the authority of the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw the way of light from heaven, brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, when he had fallen, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So now he, he points to his life as a redeemed man. This is what I was. I was a Pharisee, religious zealot, a murderer, a persecutor of those followers of Christ. And then I was met by Christ. Okay, in verse 10, he, he mentions the incident with Stephen, the, in, the incident on the Damascus road, the light, the voice of Jesus speaking, and realizing that by persecuting Stephen and those of the way, he was persecuting Jesus because Christians are in union with Jesus, and that's what Jesus points out. Why are you persecuting me? Notice he said it's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is a reference to how they used to customize um, ox carts. They would, uh, on, uh, they would put a plate on the front of the ox cart with these spikes protruding forward. And if you had a stubborn ox, you would whip the ox, and in anger, the ox would kick and would kick the goads and would get him moving where the farmer wanted him to go. So you can kick against the goads, and receive a great deal of pain. And Jesus said, that is how you're, you, you are fighting and resisting me. And many people are fighting and resisting him like that today, his gospel. Fighting and kicking against it. You know, the road to Damascus, the experience... In the, in the noonday sun, seeing a light so bright, you know, that blinded the man. Um, liberal scholars or unbelievers, for that matter, um, try to explain exactly what happened to Paul um, on the road in order to eliminate the death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus Christ. And they try to uh, seriously argue that, that Paul um, had sunstroke. Some will say he had sunstroke that, that caused him to hallucinate one theory. And others go far as to say that he had an epileptic seizure. Okay, he did have a sunstroke, all right, amen? S-O-N, in the Son of God. But with, with regard to this argument of epilepsy, Charles Spurgeon, um, this was an argument they had back in, in his day, and he said this, oh, blessed epilepsy, would God that all who oppose the name of Jesus Christ might become epileptics in the same sense? Would God that every man in London could experience epilepsy like that? <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? I love it. Okay, and then uh, verses 19 to 21, he talks about his commission. So he's talked about his life past, his redemption, meeting Christ, and then the commission given him by Christ. Therefore, 
O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, verse 19, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and, uh, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Okay, Paul preached to the Gentiles to do what? To repent, turn to God, and perform deeds, keeping with their repentance. Repentance means to turn around. Repentance means to change your thinking. So Christianity isn't merely about stop doing what you're doing. You know, stop thinking how you're thinking. Stop believing as you are believing. But it's also to turn to God. Stop doing this and turn and start doing that. So it's, it's more than a verbal profession. But it's a life, he said, keeping with what? Repentance. Okay, and then verse 22 and 23 talks about his past life, talks about his conversion, talks about the commission to preach the gospel. And then verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's interesting the order in which he does this, right? He talks about his experience first, and then he ends with the testimony of Scripture. You know, us, us reform types start with the Scripture first, right? Right? Scripture first, and then we end with the experience. Paul does just the opposite. And I think there needs to be more balance you know, it's not merely experience because you can go way off course. However, conversion in what God does in people's lives is a great thing to hear. Amen? The experience of that, what God has done, what he is doing. So, you know, we need to be balanced and not so stiff like some reform people can get. But what he does is, so he begins with scripture, and what he says is this. Uh, he, he ends by saying, this is simply what scripture prophesied in the first place. <clears throat> in other words, this is not new thinking. Right? Because what was he accused of? Some new kind of teaching. This is nothing new. The Roman Catholic Church, you know what they said of the Reformation? That this is a new move. That this is something new. But Luther said at the time of the Reformation, he says, we teach no new thing, but we repeat and establish old things. Not unlike Paul. That's what Paul was doing. At the time of Luther and Calvin, they stood against the Roman Catholic Church, and they said, we're only saying what the church fathers said. And what the church father said, or what the apostle said, and what the apostle said is what the prophet said, and what the pot. What, what the prophet said or, or what the patriarch said. See, rooted way back. That's what Paul does. That's what the reformers did. 
all the way back to Abraham. So all that's going on. Then there's an interruption. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. (laughs) Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true, rational words. The gospel is very rational. It makes perfect sense. He's not done yet. The gospel serves up opposition wherever it's preached. Right? You want to you go preach that Jesus just loves you and has a plan for your life? Is that what you want to preach? You'll never have opposition. Ever. Paul doesn't even finish his declaration and he's interrupted. So Festus has obviously never heard anything as crazy as this in his mind. God's gospel. A future physical resurrection prefigured in Jesus of Nazareth. So then Paul has another strategic move. Remember his strategic move when he was in the temple courtyard? And you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were all against him. What was his strategic move? He set them against one another by bringing up what? The resurrection, resurrection, which the Pharisees believed in and the Sadducees didn't believe in. So he brings that up. They start fighting one another. Brilliant guy. (laughs) So now another strategic move. He, He plays Agrippa off against Festus. In other words, he puts him on the spot. Verse 26. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, the the prophetic truth, the work and the worth of Christ was never done in a corner, never done in secret. Everything Jesus did, everything he said was done openly. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You get that? Right? You, you believe the prophets, right, Agrippa? Right? I know that you believe. <laughs> it's great. He had knowledge of Moses and the law, right? He had knowledge of the prophets. He even had knowledge of Jesus' teachings and his miracles, his resurrection. King Agrippa of the Herodian line. He would have heard of his father's encounters with those of the way, his grandfather's encounter with this Jesus. None of it was done in a corner in the first century. That's his point. So this must have been a a terribly embarrassing moment for the king uh, because, I mean, it could make him look a little bit silly under this pressure to say, yes, yes, I believe. You know, tell me how I can become a Christian, Paul. Remember the pomp, pageantry, royal robes, entourage, power, parent power? I mean, Agrippa, after all, I mean, he had his position in life to think about. 
and would likely perish because of it to believe in this Jesus. He probably did perish because of his concern for his position. Festus probably perished for what he thought, what what was his intellect, that this teaching is contrary to my intellect. I'm too intelligent to hear this nonsense about this Jesus. People of this day overestimate themselves as too important or too intelligent for Jesus. And they underestimate their grave need for Jesus. And But by the grace of God, are we saved? To bring you low, to bring you downtown, to where all you can do is look up by faith, which is a gift of God. So, when they underestimate their need because of power, position, or pageantry, or or pomp, you perish. You perish. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So the king rose, verse 30. And the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But Jesus told him that night, didn't he? As you have bore witness of me here in Jerusalem, you will bear witness of me in Rome. So he must go to Rome. This is providence being worked out. And we're going to learn more about providence today. Uh, Many times I think we misinterpret providence. When you misinterpret providence, you misinterpret trials of guys like Paul or Joseph or us. Providence has much more to do than the the, the near miss on the freeway, which we'll see. Ah, the boldness of Paul. And I pray, I, I long and I pray to, to, to crave not only this kind of boldness, but actually have the boldness when given the opportunity, um, you know, of being ready in season and out. To always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, even if it makes us look foolish in the eyes of the world. And that's a boldness that comes from a deep relationship with Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ. Amen? That's what we see here. So may God grant us the grace to... uh, to bear and proclaim his name with, with kind boldness that he had. Amen.